You are listening to Shaping a Better Maritime World podcast by Bureau Veritas. Each month, we discuss marine and offshore market trends with key stakeholders to help you navigate the energy transition and shape a better maritime world for the future generation. Hello and welcome to the Shaping a Better Maritime World podcast, where we discuss all the latest marine and offshore market trends with key stakeholders and Bureau Veritas experts. I'm your host, Nick Brown, and today I'm meeting with Jose Esteve, our global market leader for offshore gas and power, and with Jason Fear, who's the global head of business intelligence at Potent Partners, to discuss everything there is to know about the current state of the FLNG and FSRU markets. So, hello, Jason and Jose. Thank you for joining us. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves to our listeners? Jason, would you like to go first? Sure, Nick. Happy to do that. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having us today. Potent Partners uh, has been in the uh, maritime business for more than 80 years as a uh, broker of both uh, vessels and cargoes. Um, We uh, are particularly strong uh, leader in the uh, segment with LNG vessels. I run our business intelligence unit, which focuses on uh, market analysis, our multi-client products, and our forecasting. And so as part of that, obviously, we look at, uh, at the uh, FLNG and FSRU market segments pretty carefully. So i um, happy to be here and, and uh, look forward to the discussion with Jose. Thanks, Jason. That's great. And Jose? Yeah. Hi, Nick. Glad to be a part of this. It's very interesting to be part of this podcast today. So I'm a naval architect by training. I've been in Bureau Veritas for 20 years now, changing from positions. I started in Paris, then moved over to Singapore for five years as a Southeast Asia business development manager for offshore, and then came back to Paris in 2016 and started developing the digital twin concept before moving into the commercial department as a market leader for the offshore gas and power sector where I am the the market leader currently. Thank you very much for your introductions. As you know better than me, we're seeing a growing demand for both FSRU and FLNG projects due to the current geopolitical situation as an alternative means to diversify gas imports. So if we start with FSRUs, floating storage and regasification units, let's have a look at the current FSRU market. Jose, would you like to start us off? Certainly, Nick. We've seen a sharp sudden increase in the demand of FSRUs, particularly in Europe. And uh, at the moment, we estimate that there are between 51 and 62 FSRUs in the market, depending whether we consider actual operating FSRUs, LNG carriers with regasification capacity, but which are currently on a trading charter, or LNG carriers that have been contracted to be converted to FSRU or that are actually undergoing conversion. And to put that in context, the numbers, uh, let me tell you that there are around uh, 130 to 140 onshore regasification sites worldwide, considering those which are uh, not operating yet, but uh, will soon be. And according to the latest report by the Gas Importers Association, the GIGNL, the total LNG regasification capacity is nearly 1,000 million tons per annum which is twice the total liquefaction nominal capacity of uh, a little bit less than 500 million tons per annum worldwide. And according to our market assessment, there are a potential of 200 new LNG import storage and regasification projects uh, worldwide, of which we estimate around 84 
will probably have a floating solution as a, as part of the development. Wow, thank, thanks, Jose. So significant potential there. That's the data, and we can see the trend. Where do you think the industry is going now? And how are we going to develop more and more FSRU capacity? You know, I mean, there's, there's uh, a great deal of interest right now in, in FSRUs, particularly in, in Europe where uh, obviously the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has, has sort of disrupted the gas market. And I think you see a lot of European governments um, looking at FSRUs as a, a potential way of, of uh, increasing uh, LNG imports into Europe um, as a way of, of reducing Europe's dependency on uh, Russian pipeline gas. And so I, I think you've seen, you know, just a, a, a flourishing of demand um, or of interest, I guess, is a better way to look at it. So, you know, Germany's uh, chartering uh, four FSRUs, Italy's looking for two, Holland's looking for a couple, Finland and Estonia want one, Latvia wants one. Um, so, I mean, you, you, you see uh, a lot of interest. I think FSRUs are seen as a relatively inexpensive and, and quick option for adding new import capacity. I think, uh, you know, and, and I think this is because uh, the requirement for new FSRUs is there because Europe has done very little in the way of adding new onshore capacity. I think the, the issue is going to be the need, if, if you're going to add infrastructure, importers are going to have to find a way or the governments are going to have to find a way to commit to, uh, you know, at least five, 10, maybe longer uh, years of, of sort of capacity payments in order to pay for these expansions. And then the other problem that the Europeans are facing is finding supply. So obviously, if you've got uh, an, an FSRU, a floating import terminal, uh, it doesn't do you any good unless there's uh, LNG moving through that and, and natural gas moving out, out the other side. And so I, I think that's the issue. I, I think the risk of committing to long-term capacity agreements and supply contracts is pretty significant. And, uh, and I think that's the sort of dilemma for Europe. I think the risk, if you build an onshore terminal, is that you know with European decarbonization goals, the question is, uh, if, you, if you build an onshore terminal, a 25, 35-year asset, is that going to become a stranded asset as European decarbonization efforts uh, sort of really start to bite in the 2030s and 2040s? So that's a, a real concern. Um, the same is true of signing long-term supply contracts for those terminals. You know, if you sign a 20-year contract today, you probably won't get gas until 2026, which means that contract expires in the mid-40s, just a few years before the European uh, carbon neutrality deadline. So that's, that's something else. I think FSRUs uh, seem to offer a, a compromise between some of those things, particularly on the requirement for long-term capacity commitments. So, you know, uh, most of the charters that we've seen in Germany uh, and in Holland are, are sort of five years plus a five-year uh, option to extend or a 10-year charter. And so that might be a, uh, a more advantageous way, a more feasible way, uh, at least in the short run, of, of getting these uh, vessels in and increasing uh, 
LNG import capacity without actually having to commit to uh, much more expensive and and sort of long-term uh, onshore terminals. FSRUs are relatively cheap, you know, sort of $250 million uh, to, for a new build or so, and a charter rates of 150000 to 200000 a day. Uh, still a lot of money, but, you know, that, again, uh, that, that's the sort of balance that I think uh, European uh, potential charters or users of FSRUs are looking at. Jason, that's great. Thank you for that. Jose, have you, you got a view on um, the development of uh, demand for FSRUs? Yes, yes, yes. I, I wanted just yes, to uh, make a point regarding the, the availability of the of the FSRUs compared to onshore terminals. In in our experience, what we have seen when when clients uh, approach us for the development of an FSRU project, we see that they have a very high availability contracted demand, more than ninety five percent of uh, availability required for the FSRU. So. It means that uh, these units are, are designed or prepared for the environmental conditions, and they are probably not at disadvantage compared to onshore terminals, which also have to go through regular uh, or yes, regular maintenance shutdowns. And the FSRUs, and here I, I totally agree with uh, with the Asian, have uh, additional advantage uh, because they can be used directly as a New solutions, for example, for LNG bunkering or break bulk operations that allow directly other other vessels to come in side by side for uh, LNG bunkering directly. And what we see is also that they are started to be deployed in Duet with uh, floating power plants that give them an additional advantage or additional investment value compared to the uh, stranded onshore plant terminals. So thank you for both of your perspectives. Now that we've uh, established the why of the surging trend for FSRUs. Could you give us a bit more information about the options to actually develop projects now? I think there, there are a lot of sort of interesting possibilities. Obviously, uh, again, sort of mostly focused in Europe these days. I think one of the limiting factors is the availability of, of vessels. I mean, there are, there are some FSRUs available, and a, and a few years ago, the market looked pretty long. You'd, you'd had some speculative uh, capacity developed, and uh, employment was was an issue. Uh, I think, as Jose said, one of the the useful things about FSRUs is the flexibility they give you. So, if you don't have employment as an FSRU, you can still trade as an LNG carrier. And again, as he suggested, uh, you might be able to sort of pair them with power plants, and so. So when you're when you're talking about FSRUs, you have a certain amount of flexibility. I think one of the things we've seen is you know the German government sort of facilitating the chartering of four FSRUs very quickly after the crisis in Europe uh, erupted. The Dutch, I think, GasUni uh, took another one, uh, and I think there's there's now two committed in Holland. So you know one of the issues I think you're going to run into fairly quickly is is just a a lack of suitable vessels that can go into some of these places quickly. Um, it's pretty common that when you uh, charter an FSRU, there's sort of this idea that you can just get an FSRU and, you know, sort of moor it to where you need it and it just plugs into the gas grid and, and that's all you have to do. Uh, it's very common that they require modifications. 
It's also pretty common that you need to sort of either dredge the site or put in jetties or some sort of infrastructure. And then, of course, you have to build um, the infrastructure, tying it into the gas pipelines in the market where, where you're going to provide service. So I, I think one of the, one of the issues is uh, there's this, been this urgency to, to charter FSRUs and get them into Europe. And I think now that we're um, uh, starting to sort of actually work toward uh, getting that capacity hooked up, you're starting to see that it's definitely faster than than building an onshore terminal. But there is sort of a series of issues you have to go through. There's also regulatory issues. Uh, Europe is going to have to sort out the regulatory issues related to all of this capacity. So I, I think you're looking... Um, you know, either at converting, one of the things, the, the options are to either convert an older existing LNG carrier into an FSRU if you need new capacity or to order a new build. Um, what we're seeing is that the yards uh, are pretty full and that in most cases, if you're looking either at a new build or a conversion, you're looking at a couple of years until you can take delivery. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, of, um, of activity, a lot of progress being made. But I think uh, you know you've you've um, people are are going to have to learn to to temper some of their expectations as we go through this process uh, of putting many more uh, FSRUs into Europe. Yeah, it's interesting that you know I think um, going back a few years we were thinking very much about FSRUs going into developing countries uh, or for seasonal demand, and now you know it's very much sort of mainstream gas supply and developed markets, but clearly with some challenges. Jose, would you like to build on Jason's points there about the outlook now? For yeah, I, I totally agree. The the comment on the the current build up on on the construction shipyards, which are completely full, and uh, particularly for FSRUs, if we are going for a new build, they have the supply chain specifically for the containment system, where where we see that the market, the industry usually prefers the membrane uh, system which uh, only a few shipyards have been qualified to build. So that uh, can be a challenge if, uh, if we want to have a, a new build. The positive thing of a new build is the, the capacity that uh, it can be developed for the purpose. However, uh, convert, compared to a converted unit where you have to do with the existing capacity of, of the vessel. Now, if we ignore the, the capacity, we have assessed that there are around 30 vessels that are the older MOS uh, units with the steam turbines that are the most uh, prone to be converted, given the new EXI uh, regulations for emissions, and uh, being MOS because they, they have a reduced uh, sloshing risk compared to the uh, membrane tanks. For uh, converted units, you, you can expect a higher operational expenditure compared to, to new builds. Uh, for which maintenance and efficiency are, are lower. And uh, just saying regarding on, on times for deployment, a key site fast track converted FSRU can be deployed in 12 months. That's what we have seen. Whereas uh, FSRU that needs to be converted for a fully exposed uh, weather banning moored offshore unit will require a minimum of 18 months before it can be deployed. So when we look at the current market, are there any concerns that you have? regarding the outlook for FSRUs now? Jason, first. Yeah, I think there are a couple of concerns. I think the, the main one is the sort of durability of demand. 
there was a sort of knee-jerk reaction uh, when the um, when the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine took place, and uh, clearly European uh, gas supplies were threatened, and there was a lot of interest in in sort of taking. Uh, chartering uh, uh, FSRUs. You saw that with the Germans where they just took four. And, uh, you know, I I think the question is uh, how long those vessels are going to be required. One of the interesting things that we've seen is there's been a real surge of long-term contracts signed, particularly in the United States, with LNG customers. The interesting thing is that almost none of that has been with European buyers. So there's been some majors, you've seen ExxonMobil sign some volume, and that possibly could, could end up in Europe. But what you haven't seen is European utilities signing long-term contracts uh, to sort of lock in their gas supply. And so, you know, what you're seeing is a lot of focus on, on building import infrastructure, but how that infrastructure is going to be used you know, if if there's gas, if there's LNG for that infrastructure is unclear. We're not seeing a lot of progress there. So that sort of raises questions about the European commitment to LNG as a, as a long-term solution to their gas supply problems. You hear a lot of talk about increasing investment in, in renewables, in energy conservation, some of the uh, some of those kinds of ideas. And, and so, you know, right now, obviously, there's a lot of interest. There'll almost certainly be some, some new orders for, for new builds um, and, and orders for conversions. But the question is, is whether that's a sort of long-term growth in the segment or, or whether that's uh, sort of going to be an expedient to sort of get over the next few years while Europe sort of goes in a different direction. Obviously, there are lots of different opinions on the degree to which you can uh, sort of solve Europe's energy security and energy supply problems with renewables. So I, I think that's an issue. On a sort of nuts and bolts level, one of the questions is how companies are going to access these FSRUs that will go into Europe. And right now, there's been very little guidance on that. For the next few years, there's very little uh, additional LNG capacity that's being built. So there's only a few million tons uh, per year of new capacity coming into the market or new supply coming into the market in 23, 24, 25. And so the question is where that volume comes from, if there's going to be LNG for that. And the Europeans are going to have to rely on spot LNG purchases but it's not clear uh, how companies will be able or if companies will be able to access that infrastructure on a spot basis or do you need to sign up for 10 years of capacity. So there's a lot of, of questions. It's, it's less about a, a risk and more about uh, just answering uh, these sorts of, of questions about how people will be able to use these vessels and this new capacity that comes online. So I, I think that's the the interesting thing is is that you know, that sort of disconnect between the very high interest that we've got and the sort of progress that we're seeing uh, in, in terms of, of understanding the rules of the game going forward. That's very useful and acute insight, Jason. Uh, and I suppose immense pressure to keep the lights on literally now whilst trying to plan for a decarbonizing future is giving politicians some real headaches as 
those who are seeking certainty for investments are uh, trying to plan for the future as well. So if we jump across now to FLNGs from FSRUs, what's the market looking like for FLNGs at the moment, Jose? I think it's quite rosy right now. And uh, adding on what Jason just had said, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, interest on on the FLNGs as a faster solution to bringing new liquefaction capacity. So just for the context, according once again to the report of the Gas Importers Association, the total liquefaction nominal capacity is 462 million tons per annum, spread over 43 sites, some of them having several LNG trains or terminals for a total number of 81 terminals worldwide. So these 81 terminals include the four operating FLNGs in the Prelude in Australia, the Malaysia 2 Petronas FLNGs, and the Cameroon and Kribi FLNG. But they do not include the Coral FLNG, the Tortue Amenhem in Senegal, or the previously non-Caribbean FLNG, which are not yet uh, operating or, or liquefying, or providing new liquefaction capacity. Now, in terms of market assessment, we see that there are around 120 new liquefaction new projects for the next uh, 5 to 10 years. Uh, and around one-fourth of them will be most probably a floating solution. And now in the short term, what we are seeing, and uh, it can be seen in the news, in the industry news, is that there are FLNG projects coming up in Nigeria, in Congo, in Malaysia, in Canada, in Mexico, and even in the United States. So I would say right now the, the interest is quite high for, for FLNGs. But at the same time, we, we can see the numbers of LNGs, as you've just said, uh, Jose, existing at the moment is way lower than in the FSRU market. What What's the reason for that uh, big discrepancy? And what's been holding stakeholders back from developing FLNG projects? Jason? I think FLNG, it's a, it's clever technology. It's a clever solution. But I, I think there are sort of a number of things that, that FLNG projects, uh, a number of obstacles that they have to clear. I think one of the big issues is that, you know, if you look at a, at a project in the U.S. or, or Qatar uh, or some of the places where you're seeing projects uh, being developed today or Australia's sort of wave of projects, they were, you know, big projects that benefited from scale. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's six trains at, at uh, Chenier's Sabine Pass projects. You know, that's, that's about 30 million tons a year. And if you look at, at what the floating projects are, they tend to be two, three, four million tons, which is a, a worthwhile project, obviously, and there's money to be made there. But in, in terms of the effort and capital, just the amount of work that goes into a, a floating LNG project, you, you don't achieve the same uh, cost benefits. You don't achieve the same scale that you, you get with a big onshore project which is, is uh, you know, one of the ways you drive the cost down and can make LNG available uh, cheaper. I, I think the other issue is vessels, as we talked about with FSRUs, finding a conversion vessel uh, or doing a new build. You're still looking at two to two and a half years. And then you have to go through the whole commercial structure. So you have to find someone to take the volume. You have to pre-sell that volume in order to get the loans that you need to develop the reserves and and the ship. So again, you're sort of facing the development cycle that you go through for any liquefaction project, which takes some time. 
I think you also, um, perhaps unfair, unfairly, but you, you still have questions about the reliability of, of FLNG. There have been very significant problems with the availability of the Prelude. That's the big shell uh, vessel offshore uh, Australia. It was offline, I think, for the better part of a couple of years. Uh, it may have been a little shorter than that, but I, I remember it went offline during uh, the pandemic. Uh, part of that was attributable to the pandemic, the inability of to get crews to do the work that was required to make repairs uh, safely. So I think there was a sort of decision made to, to not endanger the crews. But you haven't seen, you know, as, as Jose sort of said, there are a few uh, FLNG projects that are operating, but you haven't seen that many. I do think uh, he makes a good point. Uh, in some cases, particularly uh, there's a project pending in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, where a vessel uh, appears to be ready and you could get in and, and begin production much faster than you could for sort of a greenfield onshore LNG facility. So I, I think there is a possibility to accelerate development of some liquefaction capacity. But I, I think FLNG is sort of one of those segments of the LNG business that so far really hasn't uh, proven itself and, and hasn't gotten the kind of traction that you see, for example, with FSRUs, which I think are viewed as a, a proven, reliable solution. So I think there's some work uh, to go there. That's a really interesting contrast there with FSRUs. Jose, any, any further thoughts on FLNG projects and, and the options, particularly perhaps from a technical perspective? Yeah, uh, at, at the time of the prelude and then on the, on the Petronas uh, units, yeah, the the option was uh, directly to go for a, a new construction, a new build. But since then, we have seen that the actual conversions from most tankers are actually working. So from the current fleet, considering both uh, those already operating and those that will be operating soon, of uh, seven FLNGs worldwide, there are two which are conversions of uh, most carriers, and I believe that we will see more of those coming up. Uh, and in addition, we have seen recent news of even considering uh, Jacob rigs uh, units uh, to be converted as FLNGs. So uh, I think uh, the, as the industry looks into it, they will find technological solutions. And the key uh, parameters for the FLNGs will be the topside complexity and the storage needs. Will it be only liquefying natural gas or will they need to also uh, store the LPG and condensate such as Prelude and therefore complexifying the project? So I think those two parameters, topside complexity and storage uh, needs, uh, will determine if we will see more uh, FLNGs in the future. Okay, th thanks, Jose. That, that's great insight into the realities of the FLNG market. And when when we're developing either FLNG or FSRU projects, there are so many aspects to consider, uh, including, importantly and, and significantly, the safety and regulatory issues. Tell us about the regulatory framework issues. I, I know Bureau Veritas has done a lot of work in this area. Yeah, totally right, uh, Nick. So, uh, fixed uh, FLNGs and FSRUs uh, operating in, in a permanent manner uh, are not considered trading ships and therefore the flag authorities will, should accept or normally accept derogation from some of the IMO, uh, IGC code and the other international writing organization codes. Uh, 
and the FSRUs are usually exempt from the EXI and the EDI uh, emissions regulations, but however will still be impacted by local regulations from an environmental impact assessment due to coastal areas with a strict pollution and emissions requirement. In a, one, one positive element of both FLNGs and FSRUs is uh, that uh, these units being permanently moored can benefit from an alternative inspection regime to that uh, prescriptive and, and much more uh, constricted of trading ships. Uh, in Bureau Veritas, we have classed more than a third of the existing FSRUs and are supporting several conversion in gas-to-power developments that uh, combine FSRUs with uh, power barges. So thanks to the accumulated expertise, we can support both owners and operators to get their vessels operating and uh, supporting their operations uh, in an effective manner. Thank you very much for that. Jason and Jose, thank you so very much for sharing your insights for us. It's a great topic, the LNG value chain, and, and obviously really timely at the moment as the world navigates the future of energy. So it'd be fantastic to hear more about these projects in the future. Uh, you know, this difference between new build and conversions and the regulatory and safety regimes that apply to both FLNGs and FSRUs. So that's been really great to hear from you both today. Thank you very much for taking part. Thanks, Nick. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Nick. It was a pleasure. Well, super having you. So we hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. For more information about FSRUs, FLNGs, and our services, please visit our website. The link is in the description that comes with this recording. So thank you very much. Whether we're meeting the challenges of decommissioning offshore oil and gas assets in a safe and sustainable manner, helping ship owners embrace decarbonisation and digitalisation to transport goods safely and sustainably, or supporting marine renewable energy technologies, Bureau Veritas Marine and Offshore is shaping a better maritime world. Thank you for listening to the Shaping a Better Maritime World podcast by Bureau Veritas.